Hello and welcome to another edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast, an oral insight into the world of elite performance in sport and beyond. My name is John Porch and I'm the lead writer here at Leaders. As ever, for more information on how to become a member and get daily access to cutting-edge best practice and original research in the fields of leadership and culture, talent and recruitment, coaching and development, human performance, tech, data and analytics, visit leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. That's leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. And for those of you who are already members and managed to join us for the recent Leader Sport Performance Summit in New York, we want to thank you for taking the time to give us such kind feedback. We're delighted that the sessions such as those featuring the Fire Department of New York and UPS were a smash with those in attendance. But whether you were there or not, we recommend you log on to our Performance Hub as soon as possible to either refresh your memories or check out what you missed out on. And we've also taken on board your comments and feedback suggesting where we might look to get better. Rest assured, we're always looking to improve our summits and events, and like yourselves, we really want to stay ahead of the curve. Anyway, today we bring you one of our best received sessions from our 2015 visit to the Big Apple, where an esteemed panel of coaches, teachers and instructors discuss taking talent from good to great and ultimately on to world class. The four guests that day included Dr. Dara Harris, who was making her first appearance at Leaders' event that afternoon and has since been back to moderate for us on a number of occasions on both sides of the pond. Dara's background is in psychiatry and there was a distinct non-sporting flavour to the session, which we know you like from time to time. This session had plenty from over the fence. Sat to Dara's left was Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Orr, an F-16 flight instructor at the US Air Force and... In another contrast of worlds, to Jeff's left was Risa Steinberg, the faculty and associate director of dance at the world-renowned Juilliard School. Last but by no means least was US Olympic swimming coach David Marsh, who has taken Auburn and, more recently, Ryan Lochte and Katie Ledecky to greatness at the Olympics. Coordinating this Fab Four on the day was longtime leader's friend and moderator, the chief creative officer of the Gaines Group, Steve Gearer. For the best part of 50 minutes, the panel discussed the science of intervention with regard to their fields and the need for good eyes and a coach. They also stress why it's important not to coach from fear if you want to consolidate long-term gains in your athletes. And, unsurprisingly, it's not only the athletes, dancers, pilots and medical students who need to stay fresh, but their coaches too. So, enjoy, and please check out our previous episodes, including last week's session with Les Snead, the GM of the LA Rams, and Tom Telesco, his counterpart at the San Diego Chargers. As much as anything else, it'll help whet your appetite for the new NFL season. So, once again, enjoy, and we look forward to welcoming you on another edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast in the near future. Well, welcome to all. Um, panelists sit. Um, so I come from the world of pro sport. All right, and I think that this panel is a little bit different than I think most of our audience, is that they do not necessarily come from the world of pro sport. So I think, not to set expectations too high, but I think there's gonna be some really nice learning lessons and some kernels of information that hopefully we'll all be able to take away. Um, so we're gonna talk about a couple, we're gonna talk in some specific buckets today. And that first bucket is gonna be uh, how you take talent from good to great to world class. And I think we're going to start off with David, because the other day we had a very nice conversation about world-class talent. And David, you work, with good, you work with the good, you work with the great, and you, work, and you take them through that entire continuum. But you mentioned something to me very specific about world-class and the difference. So could you speak to that a little well, bit? We were, when we were talking on the phone, we were, we were discussing the, 
uh, up to world class, and and uh, and my question back was, what about best in class? Because yeah. that's different than world class, at least in my experiences. And uh, uh, and I think the way way it works is that as you come through excellence, I guess you know, there's there's raw talent that takes you a certain level. There's there's kind of natural resources and genetics and things like that. At some point, resources become more and more important. Your support staff, your team environment, your uh, uh, you know the, the the different specialty coaches that might come into your into your pathway or get pushed into your pathway, and ultimately it ends up being I don't think anybody gets to be the best without some combination of of uh, of uh, obviously some natural abilities, but also incredible resources. And I believe that at every level you get to, everything matters more and more and more. And in working with especially now 30-plus-year-old professional swimmers, and some of them make a little bit of money, but not compared to most of you guys, you guys athletes in here, uh, but they have to evolve into this the, a recovery piece that through most of their uh, careers, they could just kind of do anything at 23, 24 years old, bounce right back. You know, 30, 31, you have, recovery becomes such a big deal. So that becomes a new component to stay best in the world. So. I think that's maybe the difference is that as you go through, everything matters as you, be, you, want to, you aspire to be best, best in the world, and especially best once every four years in particular, right. which is Olympic sport. Right. So that's a great point. And so, Risa, I want to go to you next, because the culture at the Juilliard is remarkable. Um, it's some of the most talented performers in the world. Thank you. Um, and athletes are performers. Um, and so I think there's a lot of commonality there, but you have a very specific culture there. Um, so what does best in class and world in class mean to you and in the context of the culture that is at Juilliard? I think there are a few things. I, I actually, uh, we would disagree at Juilliard about training because if they've had poor training when they were children, then when, by the time they get to Juilliard, it's very hard to retrain it's much easier to give information than to break a habit, as I'm sure you all know. So when we're auditioning, we're looking for people with the, either the most um, neutral palette that we see their potential, or already with tremendous uh, information that we can work with and build on. World class, best in class, I mean, those are really hard things for us to, to determine because we're not competing. We're not looking for a bronze medalist or a gold medalist. We're looking for people who are going to communicate with their bodies in the best they possibly can. We're all very human, and they're very human. And part of what I look for is in my coaching or to try to figure out who, who can I really um, mold and <laughs> get my hands on are the people who are really willing to be human. <laughs> To, to use their humanity in, as an artist versus just a machine, just a robot. I don't want them to just regurgitate information. I want them to take that information and make it human and touch you as the audience. Um, doesn't mean that we're not competitive. It's a lie. We are. <laughs> and we care who gets the first the first role. We care who performs on Friday night. We do care about those things. Yeah. Um, but in the training, we don't want to highlight those things. We want to temper them, because they're just going to come, because these are very hungry, 
um, athletes who happen to be artists. And, and so Jeff, you coach humans how to fly a <laughs> yes. complex machine. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, taking, taking on what our first two panelists have said, you know, what, what, are, what does best in class, world in class mean for a fighter pilot? And, and specifically too, because you have a culture that's very unique because you coach um, fighter pilots from all over the world, um, from all sorts of different nations. So could you speak to that a bit? Well, there are a lot of analogies you can draw between what I do in a, a sport. We have offense, we have defense, we have blockers, we have whatever. But the, the analogy breaks down with where we get our talent. So instead of starting when you're seven years old on a soccer pitch, you know, I get a guy when he's 24. And there's no real way to, to grow up in fighter aviation as a teenager, for instance. So for me, Not even I mean, video I, games. well, maybe on video games. <laughs> But by the time uh, you get to me, you've already been through a, a fairly exacting process. And if you make it to me, then you're probably going to make it through. We, we wash out a, a very small percentage of the people who make it to us. So when you make it through us, then you're on the traveling team. And by, by virtue of being a nation's air force, you're world class. Because the traveling team is the country's air force. So it's a little bit unusual. So the, our, our newbies are mid-20s to early 30s athletes, if you will, flying airplanes. And then from there, uh, we have some processes for getting guys from that uh, world-class to best-in-class, like David was talking about, internally. But you wouldn't really ever see it from the outside. Okay. So Dara, okay, so um, two things I want you to definitely address here, all right? So one, the science behind everything, but then also before you even do that, I want you to just kind of dive into what you do with your, with your medical students, because it, there's a lot of similarity, I think, especially with what Jeff does from a standpoint of simulation. Right, so we do a lot of simulation throughout their entire four years, and we break it down into very small tasks. So the first time they're there, it's really just talk to another human, which is actually the piece of dance, right? Yeah. It's, I want you to communicate. You may know everything about the Krebs cycle or whatever we need you to know, but how do you translate that? And when we do simulation, we work very hard. So you have neurons that fire together, wire together. So if I let you keep repeating a failure, mm -hmm. then that becomes who you think you are, and it becomes the kind of doctor you deliver to your patients. So when you're talking about the repetition needs of a body, um, it's the mind for us. So we have to be able to stop simulations and make them think differently, mm -hmm. um, because otherwise they do end up being really fixed. And then the patient is what drives what you need to be, not just who you think you are. Okay, so, so then there's an intervention with the coach, right? And so Risa, yes. for you, I see you nodding your head down there. So, so what's the intervention when you're, when you're teaching um, one of your dancers? It's, it's constant, your eyes. I mean, one of the things that I think makes a good coach or trainer or teacher is to have really good eyes. I teach teachers how to teach. Firstly, I teach them how to say that, which is hard enough. But <laughs> then I ask them to really identify the problem and not the result of the problem. Because most teachers create new problems by solving the result of the problem and not <laughs> yeah, really understanding, well yeah. really not understanding what the core problem is. And so that's my hunger. I, I walk into classes and I just want to really kill the teacher, not the student. <laughs> because they've just said a word that made this dancer do something which was not at all what they wanted. So it's, it's being on top of your game and to know that if I want them to be good, I have to be better. 
No. Like I have to be one step better than I want them to be. And that's similar to what we do in simulations because we're looking for the micro tell that they had an instinct they didn't follow. Mm -hmm. So I want to come back a step from what you just did and find out the other option. Right. And I think that's when we're at that coaching moment of I'm seeing things that you can't see because of your own fear or your own pattern. Mm -hmm. And it's that little tell, the little eye. Right. Yeah. And so the w water can be a barrier to that. Water can be a barrier to the micro tell. So yeah, like I would imagine. Se 700 <laughs> yeah. times more dense than air. So yeah, every mistake yeah. you yeah. make is magnified, you know, and you're in an odd environment where you know, humans aren't meant to be in the water. So uh, we're trying to, basically we're trying to turn them into fish. So there is a thing they need to spend enough time, but I agree with you completely that as uh, we really do a disservice when we bring youngsters through sport and don't teach them proper uh, fundamental patterns and go back and review the patterns over and over again. And that's what's awesome about, seems like in pro sports right now, there's a lot of give back culture that's happening with soccer and football and sports like that, at least you know, on the commercials and all that sounds, looks like there's an effort to do that. And there's no better platform to do that from than the very best. Like if you can say, look, this didn't happen all at one magic moment. I did step by step by step and I think that's something that, uh, that, that when we emphasize that, we teach people the patient process rather than just the result of looking, just the result of the, the accumulation of all the specialties. Absolutely. So, so then, Jeff, all right, so intervening in the middle of a simulation. Do you intervene immediately when something's going wrong, or do you, you know, let them you know, continue to fly the simulator and fly the plane into the ground? Well, obviously don't let the plane fly into yeah, the ground. Yeah. The, we, um, while we're practicing what we do, you can't just stop in the air, obviously, and, mm -hmm. and hash it out. And there are breaks, natural breaks, in the training process that will let you talk to somebody over the radio. But that's it. And then until you come back and do your tape review, you can't go over it. The simulator allows us to put the guy in the box, and you're at the console, and you can do rep after rep after rep, and you can stop it in the middle, and you can let him see the perfect sight picture. And like you said, I never want a guy to see it wrong, even twice, because now I've got a neural pathway and that's, that's a habit, and breaking habits is harder than teaching. Yeah. So, so the science of intervention. Mm -hmm. So what does you know, the science of intervention tell us, uh, especially when it comes, we, we, you know, you've mentioned to me a few times, coaching from the cortex. Yeah. You know, what does that mean? You know, it's, it's interesting, people now are starting to talk about the amygdala and you know, your fight or flight. Um, so the idea that we have a system in us that can hijack us. And it's a beautifully designed system for avoiding an immediate harm, right? So if there's a lion and you need to make a binary decision of running or not running, great system. But it's myopic. It only sees a very small set of options. So if your player is always coming from a fear base, um, you are gonna inherently get less options. And maybe some positions that works because you just want them to do one thing, like go. But for most of the decision making, if you're a coach and you only use fear, you're always gonna get a narrower set of options from the person that you're coaching. And everybody who has a, a toddler understands that tantrums are contagious. <laughs> and if you are firing from fear, you're going to cause that affect contagion throughout everyone else. So coaching from the cortex means that you're centered and looking at all the options and the ones that they may not see because of habit or because of the things that they're worried or the person they hope they're impressing. And the coaches in the NHL are going into their own environment, go to their home, 
go to the place where they have the lowest fight or flight, and then you'll see really what they're capable of and what they can bring. So fear-based, uh, Risa, mm. you know, this is a really great point you made um, when we first started talking about this. Um, what, what, is, what are the philosophies at the Juilliard, and specifically, what are your philosophies? <laughs> there are a variety, and I'm going to speak for me and what I believe is best and what I will talk about at Juilliard. I think if you are teaching somebody from fear, they ultimately do it for you, and that's mm -hmm. not okay. Yeah. Because they're the ones on stage, they're the ones in the pool, they're the ones that are fighting, and if they're not figuring out how to do it for them, there's a degree of separation that's very dangerous. And so I don't, although when I was a younger dancer, notice that I said younger, <laughs> I was trained through fear. That's the way we were trained. It was a very different generation. I survived it, and it made me who I am, and I'm happy about that. But I don't think that it was the best way. And I think it's, uh, it doesn't give responsibility to the person. I think it, it, it keeps them, it infantilizes them. Um, I want them to take responsibility for what they've chosen to do. This was their choice and they have to take responsibility in it. Doesn't mean I won't get frustrated, and I won't yeah. gest gesticulate <laughs> and do all kinds of things in the studio, but it's, it's really not to intimidate them, and it's not to make them feel as if they have failed me. You know, it's to make sure that they figure out that this is their choice, their responsibility, and when they're in, if they're in fear, they have to figure it out. They can't turn to me on stage and say, oh, what should I do? I just, I don't know how to land from that jump and I'm four feet in the air. You know, if they don't know it, it's their knee that's gonna blow. So David, I see you nodding your head. Um, you, you talked the other day about supporting their mindset. Um, so what's your coaching feedback philosophy, or not even philosophy, but just practically, how do you, how do you deliver feedback? Well, it's different, you know, coaching age groupers, and we have a big age group team that we have. Mm -hmm. Then I did college for 17 years, so in college, it's, it's different. It's a little bit more, you kind of move the group, you know, and, and in the, within the group, there's a lot of individuals as well. With the, with the more the individual professionals, I find that I have to come along with what their ambitions are. I need to, it really, to, to, in many ways, in all, the whole way along, ideally, you become the coach the athlete needs. And, and that's, uh, that sometimes it's hard to do when you have a larger group. But as I'm working with this professional group, not, what I've found that really works the best is not only do I need to become the, the coach that they need, but I also need to get the people around them that might help to move them toward that next level. So it might be one of their, uh, you know, a specialty coach. Although I'll give you an inverse example. Like today when I'm here, I was just coaching one of the guys uh, this last week, Tyler Clary, he's a gold medalist and tuner back from the last Olympics. And he was doing a workout uh, yesterday and overthinking things. He's like, like in, he'll look at stuff and review and review and review and he'll want to look at it on video over and over. And we're four weeks out of the world championships right now. So I kind of don't want to change anything four weeks out. Kind of leave it alone. And one of our, my coaches, who's a beautiful, brilliant uh, uh, man and coach, uh, he, he's, he's, he loves changing things too. So while I'm gone, I said, I said, coach, you have tomorrow off. I want you to just have a nice relaxing afternoon. <laughs> and, 
And uh, when the, the swimmer comes in today, and, it's, and it, uh, it's, we, we do sometimes do these things called paper workouts, where they come and they do their own practice, basically. They'll have a, des a general design of the practice, but they get to kind of do what they need to do. So uh, today we're sort of doing that, and, and I'm sort of protecting him from himself by creating the environment where he can do, do what he needs to do and not overdo it. So, so creating a culture. To, to a certain degree and creating that environment. Um, and Jeff, you talked a little bit about that the other day and how important, and this is, we had this conversation where it's really, the military is unique in the fact that they have these cultural artifacts. And so with your feedback style, how does the culture and the cultural artifacts that may be you know, present, how does that affect it and or does it? Well, speaking of cultural artifacts, the military has thousands of years of tradition and flags and bases named after people. And you walk in the door and you know exactly what the culture is. And in fact, it starts at the top with the, the Air Force core values, which everyone is taught at the beginning. And then everything flows from that, which all organizations, I feel like, should have something like that. So you know where you fit from the, uh, the fear, sarcasm, and ridicule school of teaching, the, the military, based on the, the nature of our business uh, throughout the centuries, has developed into fear, sar sarcasm, and ridicule. Right. Uh, I am in charge, and you're not. The beatings will uh, commence now, that sort of thing. But when you're a fighter pilot, uh, a fighter pilot is more of an information processor, really, than, than an athlete so much. And when you have fine motor tasks and information processing that you want to keep, uh, you want to keep the cortex free to do the things that you need to do at the time, uh, I found that the, the fierce sarcasm ridicule school doesn't work very well because you drive people back into a primitive state where they just want the, the beatings to stop. Aside from motivation issues on the ground later on, it's, it's just better performance enhancing in the air. You can so, think of fear as an emergency brake. You wouldn't drive your car like that all day but we do that to people all the time. Right. It, it works, fear works in the sense that it is an immediate attention getter. It's why people yell at their kids, it's why people yell in traffic, but it is absolutely an emergency break and it's a very high cost strategy long term and especially for exactly what you said, it, it doesn't free up the cognitive load for the actual task. Right. Um, so being selective about when you're using fear is a much you know, stronger approach. But from a cultural viewpoint of that, changing thousands of years of tradition in the military into dealing with the millennials who we refer to as snaps, sensitive new age pilots. It's, it's, nice. In order, in order to get the snaps to, to do what you want them to do, you have to think bigger picture for the team that maybe the, the Otto von Bismarck school of instruction doesn't work as well. Risa, you wanted to add? I just want to say that I, I think that most of most of the students, most young dancers, maybe most people, we live with fear. We don't need to, I don't need to support that. They're already scared they're not gonna get the role. They're already scared they're not getting into Juilliard. They're already scared they're not gonna have a job. I don't wanna support that. I wanna help them figure out, not that I, I can't promise them they're gonna be world class, but my job is just to bring them up to the potential that we thought they had because we took them. Similar in uh, in swimming, you know, is is that? I, I know, honestly, I, I would say that, that I think fear is powerful, and I think at times the the the, the there's an ultimate accountability. I mean, you're standing behind a lane, you know, Olympic trial, seventeen thousand people watching, and all you have is your speedo on, and so you know you, you better have a pretty well programmed outcome, and, and if a little bit of fear every now now and then of that 
that might cost a lack of performance helps to hold you more accountable to the processes that get you there, then yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a reminder quickly you know, insulated with the, the, the confidence, which ultimately is what you need when you're behind the blocks, is confidence, unwavering confidence. But I think to, to get the process through the long, especially the four-year process of Olympic, Olympic to Olympic, I think it's not bad if you have some ebbs and flows and, and uh, maybe somebody else in the world gets by you performance-wise and you, you know, you're, the, the fear of not being number one can, can sometimes motivate them to go deeper in their practices. And so this is, I think this is an interesting juxtaposition with the Juilliard because um, they go through a, a continuum and a progression from freshmen. Um, and there's, there's two questions I'm going to have for you here recently. I think we can you know, bounce off from there. Is that um, one of the things that ends up happening is a lot, for a lot of your performers and a lot of your dancers, the goal is to get to the Juilliard. And so then you have to recalibrate them. So as a coach, like what is that experience like when you're working with the freshman? To I'll, I'll notice that somebody who seemed to have an enormous amount of enthusiasm at the audition and orientation, all of a sudden by mid to late October, they're just in the back of the room. They're not talking so much. And so I'll make a point of meeting with them. I, I have the luxury of having strong relationships with the students. And we'll, I'll just ask them how they're doing. and. Eventually, they'll all come out and they'll come and say, you know, I don't know how to go forward. This was my goal. And so then we'll just talk about, you know, that every stage of life, there's a comma, right? It's not a period. There's a comma. And that you get to really now write your next sentence. And you also get to decide not to do it. Like one of the things that we believe, nobody's forcing you to do this. If you don't, that doesn't mean you're going to love it every day and you're going to wake up and hate it. Trust me. But you can get through that, and you can decide whether this is really what you want to do. And if you're in that seat, if you're in that seat of saying, I want to do this every day, then you will finally, you will, you will begin to establish a new goal. I want to get through, this is ballet language, I want to do four pirouettes today versus three pirouettes. That's a dynamic goal. Just make that your goal. That's all. You don't have to think about two years from now. Just make today your goal. And they seem to kind of get through it and stop looking around. They've never been with 97 other brilliant dancers before. Mm. They were the best before. Yeah. And now they're one of the best. Um, so there's a lot of adjustment. <laughs> there's a lot of psychological work we do without you know, laying on a couch and asking them what happened when they were born. Um, <laughs> although I really am curious, but <laughs> I tend to avoid the question because I could get fired. Um, but uh, I think it's really, again, it goes back to they're humans, they're not robots, they deserve my attention, they deserve, they deserve the right to, to not know what to do and then for us to help them figure out what to do next. So, so to stay on the goal setting and recalibrating them, is, is that a function for you, David, from, from you know, taking them from that good, great, because you see them along the entire continuum? Right. I think the, the, the thing that seems to work for me, and I'm sure you have this in the military too, there's kind of a locker room talk. And if your locker room talk is strong and it's powerful and it's positive, uh, your culture is strong. And that's when no coaches are around, just the, 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 the athletes, you know, and, and especially on the women's side, and we've talked a lot about men's sports here today, but women's side, 10 times more powerful if you have that going on. And the inverse is true, 10 times more painful if it's not positive. Uh, so I think the, the, the thing that, 
thing that I think, especially with the, the highest level athletes, is like there's just a standard. Like, you know, when I was coaching at Auburn, you know, we didn't let them talk about making NCAA qualifying times. Like making a qualifying standard wasn't a conversation. That really kind of wasn't allowed. It was like, what's it going to take to final at NCAAs? That's the minimum public conversation we wanted, the, the, you know, that the athletes were to have. And we had a really strong culture of that. And with the Olympians, it's, you just had a conversation uh, this past week with one of, one of the gals that uh, was in the Olympics last time with the USA and uh, kind of had a slump a couple weeks ago. And, and just like you talked about, so look, you don't have to swim. You have, you're, you have Olympic rings tattooed on your body. It's a beautiful thing. You're, you're, you're fine. And, but if you're going to aspire to be the best in the world, and that's the standard you shared with me so far, then I'm going to hold you accountable to that standard. And uh, <clears throat> some, of the, some of the things that, that she was doing at that point wasn't uh, meeting that standard. And, and, and a lot of it just had to do, like you said, with that, just the attitude of maybe arriving a little bit late, maybe uh, asking when practice is going to end and things like that, that are indicators that the, 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 they're not in charge mode. They're in more protective mode. So, so standards is a great point. So, so Jeff, standards, a military renowned standards. We all know it. I mean, it's plain as day for most um, branches and most positions in the branches. Um, so for you, I, I want to kind of delve into another part of this too. So the standards that you have to coach them to, but then also the, co the coach's standards. Where does a coach, a fighter pilot coach, go learn how to be a better fighter pilot coach? One thing the military is really good at is codifying things, and we have a document called The Standards, and the standards are the standards, and everyone reads them and everyone knows what they are. And then on top of that, uh, for what I do in the, the training unit, we have course training standards, which are this for each individual maneuver, each thing you do, here's the standard you need to achieve, and then it's a, a concrete example of what you need, not just kind of good or kind of bad. It's you will be able to do this in this amount of time. And so we're, we're really good at knowing what the standards are. For increasing the capability of an individual instructor, we're actually pretty good at that, too. We have schools uh, that are set-asides that uh, we send the, the best and the brightest, because the best and the brightest percolate to the top as they do in any industry. And those guys we send off to um, to the, the Air Force version of Top Gun, I hate to say that, um, but everyone's seen the movie Top Gun. It's, Top Gun is a real thing, and the, the Air Force has a, a much better version of that that's longer. <laughs> uh, it's called uh, the Weapon nice. School, and we send our best and brightest in, in all our weapon systems to include intelligence officers and others uh, to Las Vegas for uh, six months of really intense training, and then they come back, and then they're the train, the, the trainers. So theoretically, they have the, the whole world of knowledge, and then they um, dispense it. So Dara, same question. Where do, where do you go to become a better coach? Truly, places like this. I think <laughs> medicine is just figuring out it's a team sport. Um, we've, you know, for so long, put doctors at this kind of strangely infallible place. Um, and then now that we're getting actual outcomes data, we're having to push back that um, you know, single-person answers don't work. So going to places like sports where they understand that there's this complex balance of what the individual sees and what the rest of the team can bring. Um, you know, we have to keep asking this question of in the service of what? You know, we've done medical school this way. What is that in service of? Because really the patient should be setting 
the doctor you are. You're gonna deliver the doctor that that patient needs. Um, and if you're just doing it based on how it's always been done, uh, it's very unlikely that you'll be able to create new outcomes or move us forward. So I think team sports is where a lot of our learning is going on right now. Hmm. So, Risa, how about you? Where do you go to become a better coach? Yeah, there's no easy answer. Um, I think that teachers who are still dancing, they will actually continue to take class. And dancers, as an athlete, you train until they put you away. <laughs> and um, so you'll go and you'll, you're sensitive to know, oh, they, they just talked about it this way. I like that. And, and we believe in stealing. So we'll steal what we hear. And I'm, I'm someone who believes that if, if the, the student is doing what you want, then you're being a good teacher. And if they're not, then you, you're <laughs> the problem. And there aren't really traditional places to go. I teach teachers, so sometimes they'll come to me. Um, but that's not a big part of the field. So, which, which is maybe unfortunate, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. I do think that, that teachers of dance often get very dry. They know that. They'll say it, that they're, they need inspiration. And when you're in a, a college setting or conservatory, every September you're doing exactly the same thing. You start feeling like a hamster in a cage. And it's, it's very hard to stay awake mm -hmm. and new and fresh. And um, I think we all struggle with that. And I think we all come to our own personal... I'll restructure a class every summer. I will make sure I don't say the same thing I said last year at this time. But it's hard because the fundamentals are the fundamentals. Yeah. So you need to teach them. And I'm afraid there's no easy answer to that question. Other than I hope that they know that they need to and they figure out a way creatively how to get better at it if they need to do that. How to find that, yeah. So, so as a CEO at uh, SwimMac, um, how do you stay awake and fresh? And how do, you, how do you make sure that your coaches stay awake and fresh? Well, the, the, uh, well one thing is sending them messages from here and, and kind of keeping them updated as to, to what is, is, is the current thing going on. We do, we'll do retreat in the fall with our staff uh, out to, to Kew Island and do a, a weekend thing there. Uh, but I think the, the way that, the way for me in terms of specific to swimming is, uh, you know, I'm kind of wildly ADD, like a lot of coaches, I'm thinking. And, uh, and so I, I like podcasts, the Coach Your Best podcast. So you'll hear from Jeremy Boone later on. It's one of the great podcasts I listen to all the time. The, uh, uh, I like TED Talks because they're short and they get a good point across and we go. And, and I like to, to learn from uh, other sports and, and just, I'll tell you, just listening to the, the guys, the coaches on the panels this morning, humility that they have, the, the, you can see they're learners, they're lifelong learners, and, and I'm sure that people at this conference are that way because that's why they're at this conference. So, uh, I, I, you know, aligning with folks like this just uh, uh, really gets me jazzed and, and keeps me moving forward. Okay, so I'm going I'm to now take a question from the, uh, from the audience. I'm going to take one from uh, David Martin, who had a coach for uh, a question for uh, Coach Ancelotti earlier. Um, so, tell me, um, have you ever lost confidence in your abilities? All right. And if so, how did you deal with that? And how did you recover from that? Who wants to answer first? Risa? <laughs> Clearly, I look insecure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, constantly. Um, because 
I identify myself, of all the things that I've done in the field, I identify myself as a teacher, which means I'm my harshest critic. And so if I don't teach a good class, don't come home with me. I am a mess. Um, but I've also learned that if I've created that problem, I can solve that problem. And so I will go into the studio, and I will work on the elements that I thought were unsuccessful. I think, I think where I become vulnerable is if I think a student doesn't like me. Then it presses my buttons. Mm. And I have to really stay on top of what my buttons are. And um, if I can do that, it doesn't mean I won't get insecure, but I can identify it. And I have lots of tools, just like the tools I'm trying to give them. If I'm asking them to use those tools, I have to really put myself at, at the same standard. Okay. David? Yes, Question. it's right before the gun goes off at the Olympic trials, about yeah. every single race. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, uh, so Dara, I think I'm, I'm doing the fight or flight thing. I said, I'm just going to run out of the building. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like, what did we not do? What was the piece we didn't put together uh, at, that, at that moment? Uh, so there's no doubt, of course. I mean, I think if you don't have uh, a, 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 that response at some point, you're, 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 you're not humble enough. I mean, it's, that's silly, you know. Of course, we, we don't know everything, and every person is different. Every condition makes the, even that person different. So we just uh, try to put the best, best things we can together. And Jeff, how about you? Actually, I was hoping you wouldn't get to this question. <laughs> I was thinking what I would say, and it's some boilerplate thing that uh, I guess I, I had a monumental failure in my Air Force career with the, the weapons school, where uh, when I was a young captain, I was pushed along pretty quickly and was doing really well, and sort of a rising star kind of character. And they sent me to the weapons school, where I did the, uh, the Maverick and wound up not finishing um, five months into a six-month program. And then uh, after that, I had to make a decision on, on where I was going to go with my whole Air Force career. This was, what, 1999, so I was still pretty young. And I said, I quit. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be that guy. And I was basically told that I will go be that guy, and then I'll come back to the weapons school and finish it and do it again. So they, they got me half the way there, and I went back to the Air Force. Uh, but I never did go back to the weapons school, so I, I just didn't. That wasn't my path anymore. But I had to make a decision at that point whether I was going to curl up in a ball and just quit, or if I was going to take the, the bull by the horns and teach again. And that's what I wound up doing, I like to think. And it's been, I don't know, been 12, 13 years since then. And there we go. You're and here I am telling that story. <laughs> <laughs> so Dara, how about you? First of all, that was outstanding. Yeah. You did not avoid the question that way. No, you did not. Yeah, you took that right on. Um, so how about you? And feel free to yeah. talk about the science. Like, what happens to a coach yeah. when they, you know, what happens to the brain when we feel we lose confidence? You know, usually it gets stuck on a repeat cycle. Um, so you just rehash, but without any good, like, cortical input. So the shame culture around failure means you never externalize and process it. So a really good coach comes in and says, all right, you are working yourself over this tiny little detail. It may not even be what the failure was about. Um, so you really need somebody who's not coming from that fear base to deconstruct what happened. And so if you can break that loop and all the reasons you think it was, 
then you can start to do something different. I've started gaming it for myself, so actually courting failure. Like I recently failed at karaoke spectacularly. <laughs> I mean, absolutely, because I figured out I was really staying in my zones of competence, and I think that's when we don't give what our students need, is we just stay where we're good. Right. So by going to karaoke and you know, failing publicly in front of 90 people, I didn't die, um, thought about it, uh, but didn't die. And if you can make it a place where you're absolutely pushing that edge, then you'll stay in that learning. I think it's part of how we also stay fresh. Mm -hmm. But if you make it a game where failure is absolutely one of the options, it works a lot better than always trying to avoid it. And let's be clear, everybody fails at karaoke. <laughs> oh, God. Um, it was, I mean, there's video. It was yes. stunning. Uh, you're, stunning. You're, there's many people out here have failed at karaoke. I guarantee it. Yeah. Um, so last question, and then I will open it up to the audience for a few. Um, what was your Michael Jordan moment of coaching? When were you at your best? What was your mindset? What was your physical state? And on pawn reflection, like what happened? What, what got you there? And I'm gonna, we'll start with Dara, and then we'll work our way down. But Jeff, now you get to, you get to answer a, a positive question and highlight your <laughs> positivity here. I think I'm the happiest when I am figuring out multiple different people. We do small groups where they work with an actor, so they're medical students, and they're trying to figure out how to do something really challenging like deliver bad news, tell someone they have cancer. And working with a group of students who really didn't think they would perform well. And they started encouraging each other and figuring out the patterns themselves. So I think actually the Michael Jordan moment was stepping back and we had set up enough of a positive culture that they started learning and pushing each other. And it was just magic. That's nice. Yeah. Jeff? You know, I've thought about this all day long, too, and, and <laughs> it's interesting that it falls onto the big failure question, which I feel kind of bad about now. Um, but I think it's now, actually, for me. And the reason for that is the hearkening back to my, my age comments, instead of starting at this job when I was nine years old, starting it when I was 24, uh, based on doing it for 21 years. If I were an athlete in a sport like swimming, for instance, I'd be at my aerobic peak about right now. Uh, I would probably be uh, just on the, the upside of the hill before I start losing muscle mass and that kind of thing. And that's sort of where I am right now after 21 years of flying the F-16, where uh, I couldn't walk out the door right now and go to a, a red flag kind of mission with lots and lots of airplanes, but it wouldn't take me long to, to get back to it because I've seen the, the sight pictures so many times over and over again, rep after rep after rep, that my decision-making OODA loop, like we were talking about in the, the back, is much, much quicker now than it was when I was in my physical prime um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Okay. So now. We could do a whole session on the OODA loop, I think, too. Mm -hmm. But Risa, how about you? What's your Michael Jordan moment? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot since Michael Jordan and I are the same height. You know, <laughs> right, really yeah. an easy thing yeah. to approach. But um, I don't think I've had one. But I can tell you about the elements that I think go into one if I've had it. And that is being really honest and um, figuring out how to be honest and not cruel and not coddling and also nurturing without being maternal. I think there are all of these balances that I'm always grappling with. And if I can organize that, if the, and, if, and I can take a step back, but it doesn't mean I don't have an ego, because I do, 
and it would be a lie to say I don't. So if I can have everything in balance, then I know I can, I can proceed, and they're going to get something from my presence in the room. Wonderful. David, last the, word on this question. Yeah, the, uh, uh, first of all, I can relate to Michael Jordan because you know, not making the squad and, uh, and then struggling uh, forward, I think is a lot why Michael Jordan was what is, is, or is what he is. Uh, so I can relate to a lot of mistakes and struggles before that. But yeah, there was a moment, and, and Jeff, I'm going to do 1994 uh, conference meet. So Auburn had never won anything. We never won a conference title or anything. And we, we were hosting the meet in our brand new pool. We just built a very nice natatorium. And the Mighty Gators had won, you know, 15 years in a row SECs. Uh, we had a great meet, bunch of young guys that nobody knew who they were. We got in a position to go for it. Uh, tempers flared. It was a little something usually didn't happen. Swing pool decks. There's a little fight on the deck between two <laughs> guys, one, my guy and another guy. My guy got thrown out of the meet, uh, so I lost a lot of points that way. And uh, uh, and then we had a team meeting later that day. And uh, uh, I, you know I didn't exactly know how to do it. And I was actually a fairly young coach at this point, uh, but I kind of what I did is I walked into the room and. Uh, I, I walked in the room and I kicked, I kicked a table and it went flying over. And that wasn't like me. I didn't normally do that kind of thing. So it got their complete attention. And, uh, and, and they, I didn't have to, have to say a word in the team meeting. We just went running out the door to go to the pool and we ended up winning the meet. But what you guys know, may know, or what I would tell you as it, as it turned out, I'd set that table up. Like it was a hotel table, so I wasn't going to break the table or anything. So. I'd, I'd, I'd said one of the managers set up a table for me, have a pitcher of water on it, so when I throw the table, it goes flying everywhere, and it looks more dramatic. And so it was, uh, it was I guess it was really kind of acting. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, I meant it too. I mean, let's go get them. So and it, that was uh, one of my great memories and probably uh, a moment when I was, it worked. <laughs> very, inten very intentional. Intentional coaching is always yeah, the best go. brand, right? <laughs> Um, okay, so I think we have uh, time for a few questions from the audience. Um, so who would like to ask a question from one of our panelists or all of them? So raise your hand. I think we have, uh, we have two down here for sure, one over here at the bottom, one in the middle. So we'll start with uh, this gentleman right here. So please stand, tell us who you are, and uh, ask Thank your you. question. Thank um, you. Andrew Moss from the Canadian Sport Institute in the uh, fine city of Toronto. Um, first of all, let me say... Uh, Great questions and uh, tremendously honest answers. It was uh, very appreciated. Um, a lot of discussion in our world about centralization of talent development, world-class to best-in-class. Um, and I've always been fascinated about the, the Juilliard model versus a model. I come from a swim coaching background, and, and we have a lot of discussions in swimming about the, the best environment to develop talent. Maybe you could talk about the concept of centralizing talent development and the pluses and minuses. Uh-oh. <laughs> Who wants to go first? We All keep looking at it. I think so much of it is about in the selection of talent. How do you really pick talent and then be committed to those you've picked, even if you've made a mistake? And we make mistakes. And there are things we don't know. We audition for five hours, and then we're committing to four years. So that proportion is not so great. Um, I'm not sure if there's, I think 
you know, we give them the audition process in all of the divisions of Juilliard. Juilliard is music, dance, and drama, and, and voice is a part of music. Every audition process is very, very complete, as best you can. And you have to, I think, know exactly what it is you're looking for. And I think that's the hardest part, because it's a team that's doing the audition, and you're not always on the same page. Mm -hmm. And that's when there's real conflict. If you can get on the page, even if you're stretching the margins a little bit, I think you have a much better shot at having success in taking that talent, that individual talent, and bringing them to their own potential. I don't want them all to look alike. I don't want them to dance alike. I don't want them to play the violin alike. I, now, the, the violin teacher may, so I'm, I don't know. But I want them to be unique within their potential. That's beautiful. Oh, I'd have one more thing that just one, I think you're doing a really good job in swimming right now with the way things are structured. Bringing Ben over from England. Uh, we had the 1600 boys come down to Queens University of Charlotte to train, and the girls are coming next year. So you're doing some things, I think, are pretty progressive. Uh, so it's been, it's been interesting watching what you're doing. But I'd say the, the, one of the biggest things that uh, bring in the talent together, I think as long as you uh, train them together, but then give them exposure to other things. I think a small group of eight people, uh, they can be good for a while, but you have to travel them or do combined training camps, things like that, to, to create more stimulation. I mean, athletes, especially this, the millennial, millennial athlete, they have to have stimulation almost constantly. So creating environments that cause that stimulation, I think, is, is one of the best things you can do. Do either of you want to touch on the millennial thing? Because you have SNAPs. <laughs> and I then, call them SNAMs. Yeah. Uh, medical students. Are, yeah. OK, next question. Anybody? Over here. Yeah, Jeff Kahn from Rise Science. We do sleep analytics. So David, this is a question for you. Um, and just, you know, you mentioned the, the focus on stimulation. The panel kind of mentioned this too. Um, stimulation during practice. The question I have is, you know, what sorts of techniques um, and sort of what's your general philosophy about, you know, getting your athletes to uh, properly recover and, and what sorts of uh, measures do you take there? And the panel's totally open to respond to that. Yeah, the, the one is the simulation to try to create an emotional state at practice, like in a high emotional state. In swimming, we have racing suits they put on, and when they put on the racing suits, there's an automatic uh, symbol that, okay, it's time to go fast. So we'll, especially this time of the year, about two times a week, we'll have them put on the racing suits, go through the sequence of behind the blocks, do the routine of patterning before they get up the blocks, and, and then ideally we match them with different races. Sometimes we'll handicap the race or whatever to cr try to create um, more of that kind of, that kind of thing. Uh, afterwards, uh, we've had we've worked, been working with the USOC and Peter Vent and the, the crew there on on how to do recovery. So we have a really uh, an effective uh, recovery uh, smoothie that they'll have after practice. But honestly, it's a giant challenge, especially because we you know we have very limited resources. We don't have a recovery room they go to. We they have to go back home and put ice in their tub to sit in the tub to get an ice bath at times. So, you know, there's things like that that. That they have, and just the routine of time for a 26-year-old. They want to go to sleep or they want to go play game station or whatever they do. And, and uh, so I think uh, it's a constant education and just trying to convince them. I was talking to Ashley Merriman about the, the, the sleep piece, about how critical sleep is. 
And, uh, and, and this doggone you know, iPhone thing that they carry around with them and take to bed, it's like it, it, uh, it does not help them sleep and it, and it doesn't let them recover. So it's a con I think it's just a constant education battle, it's, and it's, but it's worth the battle because if they don't recover, they're not gonna perform. Darren, I think, I think it's probably worth, I mean, you're, you're the expert in the brain, so I think it's worth asking that question to you as well. Like, what does the science tell us about brain recovery? Yeah, sleep is a huge component of it, that consolidating learning through sleep and then maintaining that balance of time to actually process it. So again, you're, you're always walking between the idea that if you keep doing it wrong, that's the pathway you'll lay down, but if you're always taking up, and we've talked about this with fighting, the, if you're always taking up their entire cognitive load with the thing you're doing, then not as much learning happens. So when we try to teach a physician a skill, it really does start with just be nice to a person, then take a history, long before you ever put a stethoscope on anyone, because we want to very carefully manage that cognitive load. Then you consolidate that skill, then move on to the next piece, but you're always managing that, you know, that stress um, piece and trying not to lay down a negative pathway. So I'm very quick to intervene if I think you're always going down the wrong road. Mm -hmm. We won't let that you know, keep going. Yeah. Okay. I think we have time for, Stephen, do we have time for one more question or, okay, one more question, I think. Um, we'll go up here. Gentlemen, like three rows up from the, mm. yeah. Thank you. Um, I actually have a question for Ms. Steinberg specifically. Well, first I want to say that after hearing you speak, I, I wish I was a ballerina. <laughs> <laughs> Come on over, it's never too late. <laughs> um, but what was quite compelling in some of the things you were saying was you know, teaching people to be human. Um, and so what I was interested in knowing uh, from your perspective, how do we, with all these really interesting technologies uh, floating around us, how do you engage those responsibly and still maintain uh, the art form uh, of your coaching? Well, we, we're not teaching them to be human, we're allowing them to be human. Yeah. You know, so I think that's a really big difference. They walk, they're born first. <laughs> and so they have all of that intact. Doesn't mean that it isn't pathological and, and um, damaged. Right? Some of our kids come from places that I hope none of us ever experienced sleeping in cars and you no know, parents. And um, but it is it is being in conversation with them, giving them. I am not somebody, and I and this. I get into arguments about this. I don't. I am not a believer in leave it at the door. I'm believe. I am somebody who is bring it into the room and figure out how to use it because nothing's going to take it away. But you can have control over it. You can, um, you can use it for who you are and how you want to communicate and how you're going to be ultimately as a teacher. And so I, I think for me, it's it's about it's about engaging the human um, to not just be a machine at the bar, but to what are you expressing? What are you what are you saying? What it, what does it feel like? But I, I am not necessarily the majority in this, so. Um. But the medical reality is very much in line with that. We can't leave our emotions unless we're under anesthesia. <laughs> we just bring them with us. Right. Um, right, And so dealing with it, you know, otherwise half their cognitive load is on the emotional right. component. I, I will say it's for also a balance of not indulging it. <laughs> like, 
I don't want to indulge it. You've got it. I'm happy to talk to you about it. I'm sending kids to therapy all the time. I am telling them that I believe in it. I believe that if you have a blown knee, you go to a, a doctor. If you have a sore throat, you go to health services. If you have a psychological problem, go to a therapist. Like I, I even the playing field, I think that there is nothing wrong with asking for help. And the greatest strength you can have as a human being is to ask for help. I think that's probably a really great place to leave it. Yeah, so we'll awesome. unpack quite a bit. So please uh, welcome me, or, or help join me in applauding <laughs> our panelists this afternoon. Applauding each other.